This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, let's talk about Boeing. As I mentioned at the top of the show, those headlines breaking late yesterday about the suspension, the pause, as it were, of production of the 737 MAX, Boeing making that announcement. Let's understand what's underneath that and what it means going forward. George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. And Julie Johnson, aerospace reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from Chicago. Julie, I want to start with you. Help us understand just the contours of the news here. There had been some rumors, some reporting, Boeing coming out and essentially saying, here's what we're doing. What did we hear from them that's the most important thing for people to understand? Okay, so I think there are two two big um, crucial takeaways from this. There are you know, many, many points to discuss. But the big ones are, first of all, that this um, – production stoppage is indefinite. It's not clearly defined. And that raises, uh, I think, some new risk for Boeing uh, if this winds up dragging um, on longer than people imagined. And the, the other thing is that Boeing is not laying off workers. That's uh, re- redeploying about 12,000 people that work at its Renton factory where the 737s are made. And it's taking steps to try and shield its supply chain for now. They aren't just, you know, issuing a blanket stop work um, across the supplier base, which would have, you know, really bad ramifications for the U.S. economy. George Ferguson, come on in on the conversation, because what I have for you is what I wanted to ask you is someone tweeted yesterday, you know, that Boeing is going to need something like a government bailout. Does this move, could this possibly be something that is so severe on Boeing that uh, it's kind of a crippling move for the company? Actually, uh, I, I don't see it that way. Okay. So um, the uh, I think this move is all about making sure they don't end up in that situation. Our estimate is they were burning about a, a billion and a half dollars in cash per month to build the 42 maxes that they couldn't send to customers and therefore they couldn't uh, earn any money on it, couldn't, you know, couldn't receive any cash flow on it. They put about 10 extra billion dollars on the balance sheet uh, in the last six months. And I think without a clear timeline from the FAA for when the airplane would be reviewed, uh, you know, and then so they could put their put an expectation out there for when they thought they could start to send to customers, I think the Boeing board said we need to preserve you know, we need to preserve um, flexibility for the firm. We need not to get ourselves caught uh, caught in a situation. We've got a lot of money tied up in inventory, um, and and we don't and you know and our our debt burdens are such that it could make us uh, put us in difficult straits, and so we're going to have to interrupt production now, and wait for the FAA to to uh, approve the airplane before we start doing more. One thing I want to ask you guys is, Jason and I were having this conversation um, off air about. What's what's different about this airplane problem 
um, versus something we've seen in the past in this grounding. Julie, what's different? Because it just feels like this is on a whole other different level. We've had problems in the past, you know, with planes, and it, they seem to be able to work it out. What's different this time around? Well, I, you know, there are a couple of things that are, are groundbreaking with this. And, I mean, one, for, one is just the economic or the importance of the 737 to Boeing and to the U.S. economy. I mean, this is the max is the... Um, you know, is really the lifeblood of the of the company, and mm-hmm. you know George has stressed this in his notes many times. I mean, the bulk of Boeing's profit and its revenue uh, comes from from this plane. It bankrupt it bankrolls just about everything that Bo- Boeing does. So, um, so that's the importance of the plane is unprecedented, and then just the the regulatory complexity is is mind-boggling as well. I mean, you've got dozens of countries around the world um, with a say in this process, right. and the FAA, um, you know, which has always been the lead global regulator, had its its reputation really badly damaged in right. its credibility. Um, so, yeah, so herding cats is, you know, a big part of the right. problem here. All right, I want to bring you some breaking news uh, coming across the Bloomberg Terminal right now. The U.S. seeking to squeeze shipping and metals in a new sanctions bid against the nation of Iran. The Trump administration strengthening enforcement of those sanctions now that it's driven oil exports down to unprecedented lows. This is a story just crossing by our own Nick Wadhams. This is a big deal. Yeah, it's the next phase of really President Trump's bid to squeeze Iran's economy. Um, so this all has to do with getting Iran to back down on the nuclear and ballistic missile programs that it has uh, been working forth um, or working towards, I should say. Um, let's get back to Boeing, because George, I do want to bring you in, get your thoughts on, so what's next? What are you watching for Boeing? I guess this really becomes now a 2020 story as well. Uh, absolutely. And so I think you know what we're watching very closely is that um, it'll make a big difference uh, to the airline industry in 2020 as to when this airplane starts to deliver. You know, we watch the um, European and, and U.S. markets pretty closely. Mm-hmm. The longer it delays, the tighter I think we see capacity. Um, you could see some better earnings out of airlines in the U.S. We put out a note today. We think Delta is particularly well positioned if the Boeing Max is delayed. Right. And Europe looks like it's, uh, I would call the Europe. European market even uh, sort of broad, broadly adv- uh, could take advantage of this. I think, uh, right. uh, you know, th- there was, um, this is going to mean capacities a bit tighter than, right. than right. we expected. All right. Well, we know both of you will continue to follow this closely, and we will be checking in with you as the next headlines cross. George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, and Julie Johnson, Aerospace Reporter for Bloomberg. On the road again. Great song. So, um, as we said earlier, kind of watch out credit card industry because uh, on the road is a new competitor uh, when it comes to credit cards. Let's get into this story with Jenny Serene. She's finance reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. We're talking about Ally Financial. Who are they? Remind everybody. 
They are the uh, country's largest auto lender, um, had their roots in GMAC many, many years ago, um, but they've really been expanding. You know, they've gotten into mortgages in the last few years. They've started up a, um, a savings account product, and now they really want to get bigger into um, private label credit cards and then also the kind of unsecured point of sale lending that we've seen so much of these past few months. So remind us a little bit about the history of Ally, Jenny, because I remember this name from like back in the day, the financial crisis, the car crisis, everything that went on in Detroit. This company has sort of had a couple different lives in a way, right? Yeah, and I think this is really its latest life. I mean, definitely um, had some troubles during the financial crisis, um, required a bailout, and um, has really tried to turn itself it was part around. Of Chrysler, mm-hmm. okay. exactly. I like um, that. Required a bailout. Oh yeah, <laughs> that old thing. <laughs> yes, um, and so now it has. It's got a new name. It's got a new brand. It's actually really resonating with young people who maybe don't know some of that history, but also I think are very drawn to some of these new digital-only banks. And so um, they've had a lot of success, not just, you know, um, they're the nation's largest auto lender. Many people have their car loan with them, but really getting new people to the brand and and kind of introducing themselves in this whole new way. So are they going to be just like the other credit card companies? Because Jason and I got a little bit of an education with these elite cards, like a different (laughs) designation. So I do wonder, are they going to do it just... Education courtesy of Jenny Sorrell. That's right. That that was your story. Sorry, sorry. You're like, we talked to this brilliant reporter. (laughs) Who was it that was telling us about all the all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. This is why I have you. I know. Smart and silly, smart and silly. So, um, yeah, are they going to do it the same way? So, for now, it looks like they're going to kind of focus on the specific area known as private label, which is those store cards that you guys yeah. probably see if you're checking out at like a, you know, an Ann Taylor or a Banana Republic. They'll say, hey. The cards with the really high interest rates. High interest rates, um, but they're very popular. and But often with very good rewards and they're tied in. I mean, they sort of work in a lot of ways. And with really high interest rates. True. And with really high interest rates. Yeah, but they're very popular. Um, if you're very loyal to a, sp- a specific brand and you're willing to kind of pay it off every month, then it, it sometimes will make sense. Um, but what we've seen in the last few months is this really big rise in point of sale lending. So folks that will offer you a loan at, at checkout, but they're not credit cards. They're this new form of loan. Um, and they kind of come in different models. Some charge fees, some charge interest, some don't charge anything. They just charge the merchant. Um, so that's the other area that they're really looking to get into, which I think is kind of interesting that they're kind of trying to pick up on this, you know, huge rise in this new form of lending that's actually become very popular with Generation Z, which is that generation behind millennials that's a little bit younger and right. maybe a little more digitally savvy and maybe a little more credit averse in a lot of ways. And so when you think about the competitive landscape, going back to the conversation we did have with you last week about these elite cards like sort of like where does this fit where do they fit in who is the most worried about an ally getting into this in a more meaningful way I think, you know, you've got Citigroup, which has a very large private label portfolio. Uh, Synchrony Financial is the biggest player in that space. Um, And and so I think players like that might be worried. Synchrony is the former GE. GE Capital. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So they spun out of GE. I think it was about five years ago now. Um, Yes, lots of uh, reiterations of different finance companies (laughs) we're talking today because Citigroup also. Well, that's what's interesting, right? They're kind of reborn uh, under a different name, perhaps, and then kind of maybe a different strategy. Their proprietary cashback card, though, they're winding that down. 
does that <laughs> give us any indication of how good they are at this business or how do we like factor that in? I think it's a really good point. I'm kind of curious to see what this new iteration of the cards business might look for them because when they went out, they went out with a partner TD Bank um, and it was a cashback card that I don't think had, you know, some crazy uh, rewards offering, which as we've talked about, rewards yeah. are pretty much king these days. So I think it'll be interesting to maybe see how they try, uh, you know, different ways of luring in customers beyond just rewards. And I, I do think that, you know, a lot of people have found success in this kind of digitally native type product offering, you know, does a big name like Ally maybe find similar success? We'll see. Do All they right. have to do this? Do they need another revenue source? I think, uh, you know, being the nation's largest auto lender is is kind of a tough spot to be in when yeah. you see autos kind of hitting a peak like we yeah. are. And so they yeah. want to diversify beyond autos. And, and you've seen that. Um, so I think it is kind of a necessary thing for them. Whether cards needs to be that, that's the question. Like, could they try something else? It's, well, it's, it's totally also possible. interesting to think about. I mean, there are several places that really have rich credit profiles and rich mm -hmm. credit histories of people. And certainly the auto business is one of them. Really smart story, as always. Jenny Serene, finance reporter for Bloomberg, Check one of the hardest all working the stories here. that she's done over the past week. There's been so many. There's been so many. But you know, it's, but it's very flattering that you're essentially quoting her back to her. That, that feels that's good. That's like the extreme form of flattery. Absolutely. All right, Jenny Serene, <laughs> thank you so much. So yeah, I feel like, Jason, we've had a lot of guests and conversations that are pretty upbeat about the outlook, despite the run-up that we've seen, certainly uh, in the equity side of uh, the financial markets. Um, some say irrational exuberance, perhaps. Peter Coy has an interesting story in the magazine this week. You mentioned it earlier. Bubblicious, so it's going to be a must-read uh, when it hits the magazine later on this week. Let's talk, though, about an upbeat uh, outlook uh, with our next guest, John Adams. He's Senior Investment Strategist with BMO Global Asset Management, uh, joining us on the phone from Chicago. You are upbeat about global growth. What specifically? Yes, and I appreciate you having me today. Uh, you know, we really expect a continued global expansion, and that's really underpinned by three main drivers. And I would say notably uh, labor market strength, not only in the U.S., but also uh, in other developed markets, uh, continued accommodative monetary policy, and if needed, uh, expansionary fiscal policy, and also what we think is the bottom in the manufacturing cycle uh, and seeing really some stabilization there. So what were you worried about most that sort of got pushed to the sidelines that makes you feel bet so much better about uh, 2020, John? Yeah, it's actually policy headwinds is what we were most concerned about. And we got, you know, a flurry of, of positive surprises on that end uh, last week. So some de-escalation of trade tensions between the U.S. and China, uh, a, a deal in principle on USMCA, uh, a budget deal here in the U.S. in principle, avoiding uh, a, a government shutdown, and really continued indication that the Fed is not in any hurry to hike rates, and that the bar is very, very high for them to actually So, John, is this... this point. Is essentially a macro call based on, you know, some of these big macro issues that have been kind of stressing out investors? Or is this based on specific fundamentals in terms of the outlook for corporate earnings, for economic growth? What is it specifically? 
Yeah, I would say it's probably some of both. You know, we've had some some decent uh, economic growth. Uh, you know, we have been overweight equities, uh, and we will need to see some, uh, some some positive earnings come through at some point. It was a really weak year uh, for earnings, but despite mm-hmm. that weak year for earnings, uh, we saw equities really have exceptional performance, and a lot of that was, was based on solid economic backdrop, but it was also based on uh, kind of the, the de-escalation more recently that we've seen with respect to trade tension. So from a fundamental perspective, we wouldn't argue that equities are particularly cheap. We think they're closer to fair value, perhaps a touch expensive. Uh, but through the lens of bonds, we think equities continue to look attractive and that we'll see uh, that that solid economic backdrop continue into next year. It's just that bonds are so lousy, right? <laughs> is that is that kind of it? Well, you, you know, we really uh, we don't have a, a very strong view uh, yeah. on bonds. We think that we're in kind of more of a trading range here uh, with the 10-year trading kind of between one and a half and two, uh, and we are kind of toward the higher end uh, of, of, of that range. So we, we are a bit overweight uh, duration uh, across our portfolios, and that's partially playing this trading range, and it's partially uh, a hedge against that uh, long equity exposure. Uh, but we really think we're in a low interest rate environment uh, for the next year, uh, absent uh, an inflationary shock. Uh, to the upside, which we think is a pretty low probability at this point. So, John, talk to us about Europe, because I feel like we do get some mixed signals, uh, both from the continent as well as investors trying to make sense of it. Germany continues to be a really tricky story in many ways, not a happy one. Uh, you, You know, you just had a situation where everybody met in Madrid and couldn't figure out what to do about the climate. And on the other hand, you've got people talking about sort of funding a Green New Deal of its own uh, there in the EU. How does an investor like you look at that? Sure, yeah, I think there's a lot of negative news uh, priced into Europe, but to the extent we think that the manufacturing uh, weakness is behind us, we think that'll be positive contribution to economies uh, like Germany. We are seeing some positive signs uh, in countries like France, where we've seen um, some positive labor market reforms and an economy there it's not as export dependent uh, as Germany, for example. But you know, the European Central Bank, similar to the Fed, uh, they're going to be remain, remain accommodative, uh, and that's not going to change uh, under uh, the, the uh, new, new new leader at the uh, ECB. So, you know, we're, we're, we're not exceptionally positive on Europe. We, we do favor U.S. equities in our portfolios. We know that a more consensus view going into next year is that you might see a European recovery and to favor European equities. Uh, but we, we, we still have high conviction on the U.S. side of things. Which, when you dig a little bit deeper into the U.S. markets and that high conviction lends itself to what industry specifically or what sector specifically or what name specifically? You know, we're more high-level asset allocation, so don't have really a lot of strong uh, individual name views or sector views. Uh, For a time last year, we did like large caps uh, versus small caps and also growth versus value, Uh, but we have really neutralized uh, those views kind of coming into uh, 2020. All right, we're going to leave it there. John Adams, Senior Investment Strategist for BMO Global Asset Management, joining us on the phone from Chicago. And Carol, as you said, going in, I mean, we are hearing a lot more optimism about 2020. What a difference a year makes in many ways. You know, this time in 2018, we were looking at a lot of volatility, the Fed, uh, you know, trying to figure out uh, what to do and really spooking the market uh, in many ways. But then 2019 was all sorts of awesome. I think this is an interesting time, maybe a a, a moment for 
everyone to kind of slow down a little bit, t- you know, assess what we've seen in the financial markets this year. I mean, I think the gains that we saw on the equity side of things were far beyond what anybody would have predicted, certainly back in a year ago, December, when we saw the markets just getting ready for a big sell-off, of course, bouncing back in January. But it's been uh, an interesting year. And I do, I think it's contingent on a lot of things. I think the trade environment, it's still going to be an issue. Uh, The election environment is going to be an issue. And I think we need to see what we get out of global growth. Um, Specifically, I think it's a safe assumption that monetary policy will stay easy at this point. And I do think corporate earnings, again, the comparisons become easier in terms of growth. So we have to keep that in perspective. But I do think we've got to see what happens with companies. Bottom line, it's if Americans are working, certainly here, if we're talking just the U.S. specifically, they're making money. Maybe their wages are even going up and they continue spending. That's huge support for the U.S. economy. Absolutely. Tonight you fly so high up in the vanilla sky. All right. So, Carol, last Friday as he was leaving the studio, I had sort of a moment like that scene in The Graduate where he says, I've got one word for you. And the man in this case was Joel Weber. And he turned to me and said, Vanilla. Vanilla. And (laughs) this story delivered in such a major way. Uh, Joel's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And the writer of that story, Monty Real, projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Chicago. This is such a blockbuster of a story. You need to sit and read it because it just teaches you so much about global economics. But through a crazy tale. I mean, yeah. it starts like next, wading across a river. Next time I want to go with Monty. I'm just going to say yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. next story. So. All right. So, Monty, take us there. Take us to Madagascar. Yeah. So, Madagascar, it's, as you probably know, it's an island off the coast of Africa. Um, to get to the vanilla producing region, which is where we wanted to go, you have to go to the northeast part of the country. So, you fly into the capital which is Antananarivo, and then you take a little plane to an airport in the Northeast, um, but you're still pretty far away from the actual vanilla markets that, where this, you know, the product enters the market where we wanted to go. So we had to get a driver and drove for you know, most of a day across you know, just incredibly undeveloped roads, dirt roads that were almost impassable until they did become impassable. It, the road that we were on actually got kind of swallowed by a river. Um, and then we had to walk across that river. It was luckily not deep, so we could walk across and then walk. It was a couple hours beyond that to the vanilla market. So these places where vanilla enters kind of the international marketplace, they're extremely remote, hard to get to, um, but they end up being really interesting places to visit. I, wait, I want to bring, Joel, I've got to ask you, how did Monty present this story to you? Um, and you were like, yeah, we got to do this. In the same way that he does all of his fantastic <laughs> works. And it starts with the pitch. And I think we were all, I think, compelled by it because it takes the story, and we've talked about this before sometimes with some of our other stories, this thing that we just all take for granted. You know, it's yeah. like the ubiquity of vanilla. It's just yeah, it's everywhere. It's like sitting in my vanilla. spice cabinet at home. Totally, yeah. right? But it's expensive. And it's expensive, but it, more than that, something like, what is it, Monty, like 80% of the world's supply comes from one place in the world that is happens yeah. to be really good at growing it. And so much of the story, um, which Monty does a great job telling, is actually the human capital yeah. that goes into even harvesting a single bean. Um, 
and people's livelihoods are on the line with this thing in a way that I think he does a magnificent job of kind of revealing uh, what goes into actually growing vanilla. Mm -hmm. And this, to give you a sense of this, like there's a very small window that the plant can actually be pollinated. And because it's no longer in uh, Mesoamerica where there's natural pollinators for it, in this very little window, people have to get on the ground and basically rub the male and female parts of the plant together so that there can be a, a pod. Help the process right? along, right? Exactly. And basically from that moment on, they have you know a prized possession that they effectively brand and then protect until they can harvest it so it just reveals that you know for everything else in the world that's been automated there's some things that haven't yet and that's sort of what makes the craft of actually growing vanilla to be you know this untold story that um monty really dove into and so what do you take away from this monty you know you went there you saw it a lot of adventure but what did it teach you and what should we take away from it about this market and maybe the broader economic story? Well, I think one of the things that I took away from it was kind of like Joel was mentioning, this is a product that's everywhere. And it's, I think it's instructive just to kind of step back and think of what goes into the products that are on our shelves and what the sort of the price is on the people who produce them. Um, and, you know, just one of the lines in the story is that vanilla is an adventure story. And I think that this same thing could apply to other products out there as well. Um, you know, the, just the route that these products take to get on our shelves is pretty extraordinary. Still at this um, day and age, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not something that, you know, you can kind of say, okay, well, this is bad or good. It's both things at once. It's the business that's cruel, humane and, you know, sometimes seemingly insane right at the same time. Well, it's fascinating to see something like this in a world where so many industries uh, and processes have been disrupted, right? Or technology has simplified a supply chain. And yet that's not the case, uh, Monty, when it comes to vanilla. Yeah, like um, Joel had mentioned the hand pollination that it takes to grow yeah. these. But every part of the process is manual. Um, the picking of the beans, you have to massage the beans to get them, you know, to mature correctly. And everyone that I talked to, they had this kind of line that they said, you know, before any vanilla bean hits the market, it's been handled more than a thousand times. That's and incredible. Obviously, there's, yeah, there's no way to know if that's, you know, a correct number, but they mean to say a lot. Right. <laughs> I yeah. also just, for people to read, since we're basically out of time, there there's a lot of scene that my money was able to get from the marketplace yes. that it goes down which has just stuck with me ever since i first read it just to see you know sort of like real bartering sort yeah. of happens and the still, price setting and incredible price setting. incredible and there's like power structures and power dynamics right. at play it's really fascinating some great photos as well yeah absolutely it's a must read monty real pni reporter for bloomberg his story about the vanilla trade it's a must read in this week's Business Week. Our thanks to him and to Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. He was here with us in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This 
is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Rob Cochu is with us. He's Senior Portfolio Manager for Risk. Um, Risk parity parity. and manage futures at (laughs) Nellon. You can't read your own writing? I can't read my own writing. I like scribbled it here, so forgive me. For risk something. (laughs) Oh, risk party. (laughs) That's actually what I was going to say. It's a risk party. Uh, Actually, no risk party this this year, it feels like. Volatility. It's way low. Nowhere. Uh, What are you seeing as we round out uh, 2019, Rob? It really looks like we've got an all clear here going into the end of the year. Um, the economy seems to, it, the, the, the little sort of blip downward we saw in early Q4 seems to have cleared. Uh, it looks like, uh, you know, the funding pressures that were there, people were concerned about going into the end of the year aren't going to happen. Um, so it really, we see a very short term, very bullish uh, picture for stocks. So short maybe it term. is a risk party. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what's interesting because I feel like more and more of the conversations we have, um, Rob, around this table have talked about kind of an upbeat outlook for 2020 and that the financial market, certainly in terms of the equities, continuing their move higher. Is that how you see it? It, it could certainly happen. The, the, the longer term is, is our primary concern. Okay. So uh, assets are expensive. And most of our investors are long-term investors. They need to make 7% a year over the next 10 years. A lot of pension funds and uh, so pension on. Pension funds and so on. And so to make 7%, when, when stocks and bonds are both expensive, you probably need a little bit different toolkit than you used in the past. Except if you do go the fixed income route, I mean, yeah, you can look at, start and look at corporates. But the problem has been, certainly in terms of U.S. government debt, if you're looking at that, it's been so low that they've been forced to go into riskier assets. That's exactly right. And, and so there's probably a little bit better way. We can probably use a little bit of financial innovation to improve that. Bonds today, if you're looking out, how much am I going to make in bonds and in, in, in treasuries over the next 10 years is zero. Right. But they are a free hedge. So it, do you think that if stocks draw down 10%, the Fed's not going to respond? I think there's a 100% chance monetary policy responds in that case, and bonds respond to monetary policy. But it's right. an election year, and we really have been having, a, again, an ongoing conversation that the Fed at some point in, in spring is going to say, here's our policy, and they're not going to play around because it is an election year, and so it'll be set. So doesn't it kind of give us a lot of visibility in terms of the rate environment for the next 12 months, in many, or potentially? The Fed's yet done a great job giving us the outlook for the rate environment. That what What's making risky assets do so well today and, and recently is that the Fed stood pat and made clear they weren't going to do anything, even if the macro economy really picks up here. The Fed is now willing to see inflation above target for an extended period of time. Right. That's unusual. This is a very dovish Fed. And even in the face of the blowout jobs number we saw a couple of weeks ago and, and the other good data that we've been seeing, the Fed has been clear that they're not going to move. And so what was interesting about that is when, when we, we got that great jobs number, stocks went up and bonds went down. And that was normal. It, it, a year ago, two years ago, we would have seen stocks draw down based on that because it, of the expectation for tighter policy that, that it would imply. And that's not what we got this time. So the, the, the market knows the Fed is going to sit tight and they're not worried about inflation today. And so when you build a sort of more risk 
appetite uh, embracing type for portfolio, how far afield are you going? Are you going to alternatives or is this something that you can do with more sort of, for lack of a better term, sort of traditional classes? If you're a traditional investor, but you have a pretty aggressive return target, you could buy 100% stocks and you could overlay it with bond futures. Okay. That is the most straightforward, you know, in my TD Ameritrade account, I could do an ETF for global equities and then I could put two turns of treasury futures on top of it. If stocks draw down 20 or 30%, those treasuries are gonna kick in, and when it's time to rebalance into those now cheaper stocks, the treasuries are gonna be there to, to fund that. Does recession come into any of the conversations over at Mellon? How do you guys factor that in? Or is it just like, it's not gonna happen for a while? You know, we thought going into Q4 that there was enough evidence that, so manufacturing is still in contraction. This Q4. This Q4. Yeah. Manufacturing is in contraction. Right. Who knows how much longer the consumer can drive this. Rates are rising. There was enough sort of uh, dark clouds on the horizon that, that we could see a significant slowing. And then if there's some macro uh, headwinds added to that, that could be, you know, that could be the driver of a recession. And then that's when alternatives start to look really good. Right, long short strategies, managed futures, a lot of the stuff that's our bread and butter starts to be much more marketable when equities are a little scarier than they've been lately. Uh, so we watch for that very carefully. But you don't see recession anymore? You know, it, 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 the short answer is no, yeah. okay. not in the short run. So Rob, you know, one of the things that I, I appreciate and like about your background is you're an, an economist by training, you've taught, I mean, you have the academic chops to really do this, not everybody can say that. When you look at what the market is doing versus the sort of long historical uh, view that you have from coming out of academia and, and working in that environment, what do you see that is sort of fundamentally different, if anything, about where we sit right now? What I like about managing money is that there's always something critical that's different, yeah. right? So it's always trying to solve for what do we learn from the past, even though this over here is different? What we have right now is that we've opened the Pandora's box of uh, unusual monetary policy, right? It's not just lowering rates, it's going out and wholesale asset purchases. And in some places, it's even buying stocks, right? So the Pandora's box is open, and uh, the Fed has a set of tools now that may allow them to really uh, slow the, the business cycle to a, a length that we've never seen before. And so, the concern that I have is that the natural forces of, of sort of burning things down and then and building up from uh, sort of a clean slate don't happen in the natural way in the way that they used to. You know, California got good at stopping wildfires. What happened is you got a lot of underbrush. And so when there was a fire, it was major. Yeah. And, and we may have the same thing from a monetary policy and a, a macro economy perspective. Which plays into the story that Peter Coy has in the magazine. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about, you know, you know, how bubbles have become a part of kind of our way of life. Anyway, I don't want to give away the story, in but some, I feel like it plays into... In some ways, into, uh, part yeah, of the playbook. Necessary. All right. uh, Rob Croce, great to catch up with you. I thought you were going to ask him who he roots for having both degrees from Ohio State. Yeah, well, he's Penn got State. Penn State and Ohio State, <laughs> and he's true to his uh, undergraduate degree, even though it's certainly tougher this year with uh, Ohio State in the playoff and Penn State not quite making it, but a season to be proud of. Feels thanks like. very much for having me, guys. All yeah, right, thanks great a conversation. Uh, Senior Portfolio Manager for Risk Parity and Managed Futures over at Mellon. I'm glad you could get it out. Yeah. Um, uh, but really great. Good, a smart conversation because I do think we're all trying to figure out what happens in 2020 because there'll be so many things going on. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.